Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we thank you so much for this day, for the blessings of this day, for little Amron, and, and uh, for your goodness to us. And now, Lord, as it is the weekend, uh, the weekend of commemoration of your death and resurrection, Lord, I pray that your spirit will be with us now as we reflect on this. In Jesus' name, amen. It was one of the great awkward moments in Scripture, though at the time I don't think they realized just how awkward it was. You heard it a moment ago, Patty read from Matthew chapter 20, and if, if you want to grab one of the Bibles there in front of you and follow along, I invite you to do that. I'll be using that same translation. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so if you're not sure who that is, we're talking about James and John here, the disciples. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that's Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, there's context to this moment. The disciples have many times digressed into little arguments among themselves as to who was the greatest. You see, it was obvious that Jesus was here to set up an earthly kingdom. And anytime you set up an earthly kingdom, it is absolutely essential that we clearly define the hierarchy and that we know exactly who the number two and the number three leadership team is. And these disciples saw in themselves fabulous leadership gifts. And as a result, it led them from time to time to argue amongst themselves as to who should be the one right there. And now we have totally in this moment gone to the next level because no longer are the arguments just, are the disciples just arguing among themselves. They've gotten their mother involved. Anytime you get mom involved, it's gotten serious. And so she, here she is, bringing her boys to Jesus, kind of an awkward moment, isn't it? Especially when you really know what's going on. They come with a request. And, I, and I, I just want to pause here, and you can reflect in your own life. I did some reflecting on this myself this week. Have you ever asked Jesus something and had him say to you, you do not know what you're asking? Have you ever thought you had something that you absolutely knew Jesus needed to give you and have him say to you in that moment, yeah, I'm not sure you know what you're asking for right now. As I reflected on that question in my own life, it occurred to me that just about every time I came to Jesus sure about something, he had to say that to me. Yeah, I could do that. But do you know what would happen? Do you know what you're asking me? 
Jesus gets into some symbolic language here, and we find it in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. You ever said anything that stupid in your life? Yeah, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah, we can do it. You ever give Jesus that stupid answer? I can handle it. When he knows full well, you have no idea what you're getting into or what you're even talking about. You think you know. And then Jesus says some words that they might have found very disappointing right then. But in fact, these words were the best thing he could have possibly told them in this scenario. Matthew 20, verse 23, Jesus said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. They were probably disappointed. But see, this is what happens to us because we have incomplete knowledge an incomplete understanding. And that reality often causes us to do and say some pretty dumb things sometimes. And again, we've said this before, but I say it again in this context. This is why we must remain humble. Because we don't know everything. In this passage, we, we are introduced to this, this image of the cup. Jesus says, can you drink the cup I will drink? And in this context, this is a, a metaphor. Tony spoke of that earlier. A metaphor that symbolizes the experiences that a person is going to go through in their life. To drink the cup is normally connected with the concept of living through something. And typically, in this context, it means some sort of trial, some sort of difficulty, some sort of suffering. There's another phrase we use sometimes today. We'll say, that's a bitter pill to swallow. It's the same concept. And it's not always just a bad taste in the mouth. Sometimes it makes your stomach sick as well. So what is this cup that Jesus is speaking of? And what was it that he was going to have to face? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is, this is Easter weekend. This is the weekend when, when pretty much all of Christianity, for a change, is on the same theme. Now, what they're saying about it could be radically different, but at least... All of those who call themselves Christian are generally on this weekend on the same theme, the, the focus on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there will be a lot of time spent in a lot of places talking about the physical suffering of Jesus, and we will mention that today as well. And, and I want to say, yes, indeed, what Jesus went through was a physical suffering but I want to remind us of one thing here that 
Jesus was not the only person to have ever been crucified. The thing that makes all of this so meaningful and special is not narrowly that he was crucified. There were thousands of people who were crucified. And tradition even suggests that in the end, Peter himself was. So when Jesus is saying to John and to James, can you drink the cup that I am about to drink? I want to suggest to you he was saying more than, can you die for this cause? Because indeed, if we're understanding the telling of the story in, James, in, in the book of Acts correctly, James will be the first of the disciples to die for the cause. John will be the last of the disciples to die, at least in the cause, if he was not in fact killed for the cause. They will in fact suffer death for the cause, and in that sense they will drink the cup. But is Jesus really saying the cup I'm going to give you is the same one I have? I don't think so. Because he said to them, you don't know what you're saying. Jesus will mention this cup again, and this time we'll be in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. I find it interesting that they're identified that way in both of these stories that talk about this cup. They're not identified in Matthew as James and John. They're identified here as the two sons of Zebedee. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. What do you suppose it was like in this moment for those disciples? Remember, they don't know what's coming. Only that they just got done having a very strange Passover meal with Jesus where Jesus said lots of stuff that you would have a really hard time connecting with the idea that Jesus was on the brink of becoming the literal king of Israel even though that's still what's in their mind. They just got done having this, this supper that only later would they know was the last supper. And Jesus just got done telling them all kinds of things, including I'm going away and, and you're going to be in despair, but then you're going to feel better. It's like, wow, what just happened? And now they've gone out into the garden and he told nine of the disciples and however many else of them there were there that evening to stay here and he's taken three and he's gone a little farther on with them and begun to be sorrowful and troubled. How do you deal with that? What do you do with Jesus who's always been the leader, always been the one who kept, who, you know, who kept things moving, who was above all of this and now, now he's seemingly becoming consumed in it, and now throw on top of that, you're really tired. You had a big week. It's been a big week. Verse 38, 
Then Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is not normal talk for Jesus. We don't have anywhere else where it's recorded. He got together with the disciples and man was he bummed out that night. No. Nowhere. But all of a sudden, here he is, sorrowful, saying, I am sorrowful to death. Remain here and watch with me. In verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup. This is the one James and John were pretty sure they could handle. Yeah, we got it. But right now, Jesus isn't even sure if he can. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery for this idea of a cup that must be drained. We can find an example in Jeremiah chapter 25. And anytime you go to Jeremiah, you can be pretty sure it's going to be tough. Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of the wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. We talked about them last Sabbath when, when we were looking at the prophecies that were related to what was said at the triumphal entry of Jesus. Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon. Interesting inclusion here. Edom is the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And Moab and Ammon, the descendants of Lot. And all the kings of Tyre all the kings of Sidon and the kings of the coastlands along across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair. That's an interesting reference. No idea what that means exactly. All the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of Media, and all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Every nation must drink this cup. This is the cup of judgment on the nations. And as it stood in the day of Jeremiah, all would drink the cup. Verse 27, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. 
And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. I wonder, I wonder if that night, as Jesus prayed that prayer, if the words of Jeremiah came to his mind, you must drink. Somehow this cup must be consumed. There's another mention of the cup in Jeremiah chapter 49, this time in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse, and all her cities shall be a perpetual waste. There's an interesting admission here. There have been in the history of the world many who have had to drink this cup who did not deserve it. It was just part of the reality of the world. And the Lord is saying here, if the innocent have had to suffer at your hand, why do you think you go without suffering? We have a word for that. It's called justice. The words of this passage are reminiscent of an earlier prophecy from Isaiah, a prophecy about one who will go to Basra and bring about judgment. Isaiah 63. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I want to leave this prophecy here for a moment. And go again to another place in Scripture we don't often go. But we went there last Sabbath, so it's two weeks in a row. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. I give you a second to find it. Habakkuk chapter 2. We read from it last Sabbath. We read the part specifically about how if it seems the prophecy is delayed, wait for it. And we read the part about the righteous shall live by faith. This passage that gets quoted by by Paul in the book of Romans and becomes a key passage to the entirety of the Reformation that would take place in the Christian church through Martin Luther. But Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. There's a, 
there's a, a phrase that takes us back to the story of Noah. You will, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. You see, this cup is going to come to everyone. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. You see, this cup is filled with injustice. And it's filled with abominations. And it's filled with evil works. And it's filled with murder. And every unimaginable, unimaginable thing of darkness that has been done on the earth. And this cup must be emptied. But who's going to drink it? Will it be us? Or will there be another? Matthew 26, verse 38. Then Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Am I going too far here? Clearly you can see what I am suggesting, that it is in the context of the Old Testament, in the context of the moment, and the context of the overwhelming grief that has come upon Jesus. He's not just afraid of dying. It's not physical suffering that has him sorrowful to the point of death. There's more going on here. The cup that Jesus faces is more than just a harrowing physical ordeal that he is about to go through because many have gone through that. There's something more here. Why do I say that? Well, the Old Testament context of, of what is in this cup and what Jesus says to James and John, yeah, you're not going to be able to handle this cup. And as the full of the reality of what he is about to do comes crashing down on him, Jesus longs in this moment for the comfort of his human friends but alas, there was no way we could help. For you see, we're not the help, we're the problem. We're the reason someone has to drain this cup. Because we can't do it ourselves. Matthew 26, verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So... Could you not watch with me one hour? You see, it was exactly as Isaiah's prophecy had said it would be. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. I looked. I came back and I looked. But there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So what did Jesus have to do? 
So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. Whatever it was that was in this cup that Jesus knew he was about to drink, he knew he was going to have to drink it alone. And we weren't even going to be decent moral support. Verse 41, Matthew 26. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. I wonder, do I detect a growing resolve in Jesus here? Please take the cup away. Now the next time, if it can't, your will be done. Verse 43, and again Jesus came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It seems like the second time Jesus came back, he didn't even bother trying to wake him up. He's like, all right, I'm going to have to do this alone. Because he was the only one who could do it at all. And we're not going to detail what happens after this. There's the betrayal by a beloved close friend. There's the being roughly taken by the mob. There's the, the unfair trials that take place in front of the Sanhedrin and, and others. There's dragging him over to, to stand before the representative of Rome. Then he's whipped. And he's mocked, he's crowned with a crown of thorns. You know, I think about that one sometimes. You ever prick your finger on a thorn? You know how that hurts way, way more than it should and just keeps on hurting? How about a whole bunch of those on your head? And then really funny guys hitting you with a stick on top of it. Ha ha, real good guys. And then he's marched, they put him in a robe to make fun of him. That's the big Gentile moment in the story. Yay us, right? Then they make him carry his own cross, or at least for a little ways, until he can't, because he's so physically broken down by now. Almost a relief when you actually get there. And then he's crucified. Just from the physical suffering alone, the cup is bitter. But it was more than just abuse that Jesus willingly took upon himself. For you see, Jesus drank this cup so that we might be offered a different cup. One that redeems instead of destroying. You see, the Old Testament cup 
was full of abominations and wickedness and evil. And it was coming to everyone. And someone had to come and take that away. So that we might get not the cup we deserve, but the cup we are freely given by the one who drank the cup we could not drink. Back to Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Uh, some of the other gospels describe it, in your glory. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are saying. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. And neither are we able to drink this cup. Only Jesus can drink it. And as for, can my sons be at your right and your left in your moment of glory? Wow, she better be thankful that didn't happen. Because you know who was at the right and left of Jesus in his moment of glory? Two thieves. Two thieves. Yeah, don't ask for dumb stuff. Be glad that Jesus doesn't answer all your prayers. Matthew 26, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out. Do I have that text right? Is it 27? I may have put that wrong in my notes. That's the downside of not looking it up when you're here. I think it's 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. No, 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 no. Elijah's not coming to save Jesus. Jesus is coming to save Elijah. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. See, the cup was empty now. The work was complete. And Jesus was at last at rest. And that's what he did. That is what Jesus did that Sabbath day. He rested which is exactly what God does every time he finishes a great work. Finishes creation, he rests. Finishes salvation, he rests. 
Whenever God finishes a great work, he rests. And then he gives us the rest, which is the result of the work he has done. He rests a day, and then he gets back up and gets back to work. And though no one at the time understood what was going on, that was what was happening that Sabbath day. He was resting in victory. Well, actually, ironically, there were some who remembered what Jesus said would happen. But it wasn't the disciples. Is it possible that sometimes the enemies of God believe what he says more than his friends? Yeah, I wonder. Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. The funny part of this story is they need not bother. The disciples were all blown up at this point. They had no idea what was going on. They weren't even going close to that space. But yet they remembered what he said. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And then chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that part. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Who is this who comes from Eden? In crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, Jesus says, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Jesus was risen. Jesus is risen. Jesus lives. He has taken the cup we could not drink and drained it to the bitter dregs. 
And he has overcome everything evil. He has faced the enemy death and defeated even death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus drank the cup of death and judgment that we might be given a different cup. But what cup were we given? Matthew 26, beginning in verse 27. They're gathered for that last supper. And we find these words. And Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing some songs here in a moment. You see, Jesus has emptied the cup of judgment and death, literally taking it from our hands because that was the cup in our hand. It is as he told James and John, you can't handle the cup in your hand. Here, let me give you a different one. He took the cup that means death and gave us the cup that means life. This is the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Have you received this grace from the risen Lord? You see, Jesus achieved this and we didn't help at all. In fact, we made it harder. You want to know our role in this? We made it harder. We were the best friends that betrayed. We were the good friends who fell asleep and couldn't, couldn't even comfort him the night of his suffering. We were the Gentiles that hit him over the head with the stick. We didn't help. But Jesus didn't do it because we were worthy. He did it because he loved us. And he wanted to reestablish what he and the Father had in mind from the beginning. This life and reality for us 
centered in love and grace. So Jesus drank the cup we could not handle. And instead, placed in our hand a different cup. The cup of love, the cup of life, the cup of joy. And all we have to do is receive it. I hope that you will receive this cup of life today. And as we sing these songs, the grace that is yours through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will empower you in this moment and in every day, as long as you live, and into the eternal tomorrow that is promised to all of us.